Welcome to this special episode of the Hive Life Podcast as we take an introspective look at influencing entrepreneurs, a video and teaching series by our good friend Cass Ward. And during this episode, we'll break down some of the key points of his interview with Lewis Foreman of Aventus Partners. I'm Jared Latch alongside my business partner, Tim Bear and Cass Ward as we dive into episode 101 of Influencing Entrepreneurs. And during this episode, we'll tackle the following topics scalability, identifying the market opportunity, intellectual property, and defining your customers. So guys, as we start things off, Cass, I'll project this over to you on scalability. Elaborate a little bit on that. Well, one of the things that Lewis handles so well in this episode, and actually in a lot of his speaking engagements that I think is the most applicable bit of information to be shared, is his first business starts out of his dorm room. He, he mentions he needed some lacrosse equipment for his team. There was only one supplier, and he found a way to create a small catalog to provide that, to provide those services and provide those products. And the reason I find it, it that it is so important into the concept of scalability is he starts it with just his lacrosse team. And until that's successful, he does not move on to other teams or other products. What happens with so many business concepts nowadays is we want to go into any field. So let's just say it's lacrosse equipment or sports equipment. We think that there's a need to purchase hundreds of thousands of dollars of material to get started. And he realized, no, let's just fill the need and the demand that's there and then start um, increasing the market size that we want to go after and from there he wisely does it he goes into lacrosse equipment for other teams into t-shirts for the fraternities then the fratern uh, then t-shirts for the sororities and builds upon it that way and it what we like to think about is he mentions at one point that he becomes the 24th largest screen printing apparel company that didn't happen overnight. It started with just a simple need and fulfilling that demand. You know what I think uh, you're tapping on it here in the scalability portion is he minimized his risk. Um, he didn't do that huge purchase of you know all of this equipment and having to have that inventory. He basically set it up that he was gonna be making a 50% margin on these orders and you had to pay 50% up front. And so then he covered it when he went to make the order. So. He was really just that middleman at that point, and it really allowed them to grow, but not grow through putting too much risk on the table. And I think what stuck out to me, too, is he talks about the catalog. I mean, how many people in his situation early on would put things together foundationally to let it take off? Because you have a lot of different options when you first get started. He did hone in on one specific need. He didn't look outside of that box. But within the box that he formed, he did things extremely well in setting the table. Really? Yeah. And that's what's to me is fascinating. And this is sometimes where the best ventures come from is he didn't set out to start a venture or a business. He just wanted to have he was filling a need that was out there. And Lewis does a great job of bringing this back to uh, textbook terminology. And he talks about supply and demand and market opportunity. And that's a lot easier to uh, apply after the fact. But as you both know, and, and, and from our experiences, we've never sat down to in a business meeting and drawn the supply and demand curve looking for those. 
those textbook definitions. He started with just fulfilling a need and stumbled into a business and grew that business from there. You don't want to go out and borrow a lot of money. You don't want to take on a lot of debt. So we were very efficient in the way we ran that business with a, a startup you know, budget of $1,000. We leveraged credit terms from manufacturers to help us from a cash flow standpoint. We used deposits from our customers to improve our cash flow. And then to diversify our business, to make sure that we could amortize our overhead over a lot more revenue, we sought other lines of business that would keep generating income throughout the course of the year. I think what was also interesting about, about his whole starting out was the, you know, the idea that he brought together a number of different, you know, suppliers, and it wasn't that he had to do everything either. Right. And so, but then as they wanted to grow, they realized they needed to do it to be able to innovate. He he found himself stuck in a point where he couldn't innovate more because of his suppliers weren't putting, you know, maybe those dollars back into the newer equipment for screen printing and so forth. And so I thought his example of how he eventually got to the end of his opportunity there and then saw, okay, we could take this to the next step if we bring this in-house. Guys, I want to throw this one at you too. It, it goes with the challenges for scalability because we talk about it all the time and it's much easier to do with a product, with a service. You've got to have some other associated offering, I would say, to make that a scalable play. But if you're in the environment of, of looking at some things on a checklist to say, hey, how do we scale? What are a few of those things for people to think about? Well, that's the conundrum that we all end up in. Um, we've all had these conversations, and maybe not in these terms. We want to grow our company. That's what we. That's every business model out there. Grow the company. The question is: Is do we grow our capacity, or do we grow our market slash customer base? And we end up fighting with ourselves over and over. Yes, let me invest in the capacity. Well, I need the sales to offset the capacity. So let me not invest in capacity and let me go get customers. Well, if I get too many customers, I can't fulfill those orders. And we're constantly balancing at what point do we pull the trigger on either or, or how do we do them both at the same time? Because this, the, the risk of doing them both at the same time is it doesn't work. But unfortunately you can't do one or the other so you start doing baby steps on each side to slowly move forward and that takes us into that that market opportunity piece is crucial for any product or service as you go through that identification process of finding out okay what is our market where is the greatest opportunity right and lewis refers to this several times as he just started off with lacrosse so he looks for that market opportunity he fulfills it just for his team and as he builds it, he looks to say, what, what, am I, what, am I, what am I offering? And it was apparel. And it started off as equipment. But he said, you know what? There's more opportunity by offering T-shirts for the college to offer them for the fraternities and sororities. And then that was just within his own school. So the scalability goes into the market opportunity. Let me replicate this over and over. So he ends up building the 24th largest screen printing uh, company in the nation at that point and his next question is where's the opportunity i've hit all the 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 teams and colleges that i can in this area even though it was countrywide he saw the next market opportunity was a nascar and realized i need to move to charlotte north carolina in order to tap into that opportunity 
And that one, you know, he gets into it a little bit. He sort of grazed over it, though, in the in the piece that we're watching. And, and for those of you out there that were tuning in for your usual video marketing conversation, this is a little bit skewed in that we're talking about entrepreneurship, but we did a series of videos with Cass in working with these entrepreneurs. And you're going to have an opportunity to see all of those interviews and get to see them in their home. We're trying to bring you a little synopsis and behind the scenes of the conversation. He talked about that NASCAR business going from zero to 20 million in like two and a half years, which is amazing that he saw the opportunity, but then to execute on that and be able to exit, it's pretty impressive. And, And what's funny is we talked about the capacity versus building market share. He slowly built the capacity to match that. And when that capacity was built and sustainable, which is a huge balance, he now said I could execute on that NASCAR because what could what could have happened is he decided to go after that while he was in his dorm room, get the contract for NASCAR, and his company would have failed that much quicker because he would not have been able to, f- to fulfill orders. And that's what I wanted to touch on because scalability, obviously, and market opportunity tie together hand in hand in a number of different ways. You see the market opportunity and how much is trying to do too much a negative, often in terms of scalability, that's not what Lewis did. He identified his his pocket of opportunity. He went with it. But you'd think easily he could have said, let's try to dominate everything and go about a, a path of rapid growth. And that can hurt a lot of different businesses, can it? Yes, it can. And it's one of those things that you want to grab every opportunity that comes before you. We all we all talk about getting the, the, the great, the big blue whale. And Tim does specifically. Yeah, I like yeah. when he. I like when he uses that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the thing is, in in theory, that's exactly what we like. If we are in a canoe and we hook the big blue whale, it's going to take us down. Right. the The analogy is no different for business. It's sad when you see a business grab onto an opportunity that's bigger than they can handle at that point, and it actually is. Uh, catalyst for the downfall of that company. You know, I, I was watching Shark Tank earlier, and this will actually allude to some of uh, Lewis's later ventures, but Damon John was talking about the story of Under Armour versus FUBU, and he started at the same time as Kevin Plank started Under Armour. Kevin Plank spent 10 to 15 years focusing on his uh, sweat-wicking shirt, and that was his baby, and he went with it, and he had one skew, and he just pushed it for 10 years to all the different football teams, all the different sports, whereas FUBU had 400 skews. He was trying to hit you know, everybody and make everybody happy. He said today, you know, Under Armour's worth $4 billion. FUBU's worth maybe 2% of that, right. which is still $200 million, so nothing against Damon John. But I think that plays into that too, is that you have the possibility of diversifying yourself and losing focus. Yeah. And that can happen quite often. You see a lot of companies take the wrong turn. They try to dominate the world, per se, and, and they lose out. And before they know it, there's competitors that take a share of that missed opportunity, like Tim alluded to, losing focus on some of the other things that you were doing really well. You become just average. And there's a lot of companies, when you got to the top, that they want to come in there and take a share of what you're doing. So staying focused on one thing is extremely Important. Now, we all know Lewis, he is an expert when it comes to intellectual property. And what were some of your takeaways in that area? Because now he's, as Tim said, the later ventures with Aventus and what he has built is all around intellectual property and taking ideas. 
Well, what's funny is I could talk about the t-shirt example for hours and hours on end. And unfortunately, I'm bringing Lewis Foreman in who's known as an intellectual property expert and it's what we spend a fraction of the time talking about. But um, I spent some time working with Lewis back uh, several years ago with the medical device company and everything I learned about intellectual property, I learned from him. And the first piece is we all want an idea. I have an idea for the next best coffee mug. I have an idea for the next best seat warmer for my car. Having the idea, what is that worth? We, you know, there's no dollar value. It, it, it could be worth, it, right now it's worth zero. It could be worth 10 gajillion dollars. On the flip side is how do I stake my claim to that? And that's where I build value in intellectual property. What makes it unique? So you spend some time, you spend some money, you do some research, and let's say you end up getting a patent, a trademark, something to, to secure your right to that mark. There is an inherent value in the intellectual property itself. The next question is after you spent that money, what is it worth? So you assume that the, the value is worth something because you spent your time and money on it, but then you have to evaluate what is the value of the viability of that intellectual property. So now I have the next best coffee mug. I spent money. I'm going to go enter it into the market. Does anybody want my special coffee mug? Whether it keeps your coffee colder, sweeter, creamier, whatever you want, where is the inherent value in, in that intellectual property? So the next piece you have after that is if there is demand for it, what is the value of your your intellectual property and really your value becomes more determined on your your ability to execute on market penetration and building sales upon that and it's a very shaky area at points because you want to say my patent's worth the value of the company but unfortunately you get into circumstances where people will say your value is only worth what you're willing to defend it upon in court. And that is if somebody infringes upon your patent. So facetiously, I say, your intellectual property is worth so much when you don't have it. And then once you have it, you realize it's not as worth as much as you think it is. That's a good point. I think um, when you listen to Lewis talk about, you know, how they approach it, a lot of the deals that he speaks of are the licensing deals and where they've found a way to, you know, not only patent that product or that idea, but then also find a way to find partners that are going to take care of that distribution side, that sales side, and that piece of the puzzle that maybe the inventor is not good at. Right. You know, and that's that connection that Aventus has really been able to figure out in maximizing value for these patents. And they've made it easy. I mean, a lot of these inventors don't want to invest the time or the effort once they come up with the idea. And the one that stuck out to me during the videos when you ask him, give me some of the ideas that you thought would work that didn't really work and the others that you weren't too keen about and those took off. And in his example on the one that he didn't think was a very good idea was the one to peel hard boiled eggs. But one of the products that, that I recall specifically just feeling like there was no potential whatsoever was a product that we did a number of years ago called Eggies. Uh, it was invented by a, a suburban housewife, Betsy, Hughes, Betsy Kaufman from Houston. And her problem, her pain, was that she hated peeling the shells off of a hard-boiled egg. 
So she submitted to us, I hate peeling shells off hard-boiled eggs, and our engineers figured out a way to solve that problem. So they created a little plastic vessel that you unscrew, you crack the egg and drop the contents in there, you boil it in hot water, and in a few minutes you've got a hard-boiled egg that has no shell. And so when they showed that idea to me, I thought it was the silliest idea that I'd ever seen. In fact, I thought that no one would be so lazy that they would buy something like this. But my employees reminded me of those five questions that I ask everyone. They identified something that was novel, that it was different than everything else out there. They identified who the customer was. They did some market research by shooting a video and throwing it out on the internet to see if people would react to it. They did a quick P&L to determine what the cost of goods would be and how many units they would have to sell to break even. And of course, they knew that I would write a check if it was successful. And so they threw it out there. And in one year, we sold 33 million of those little plastic eggies. So the lesson learned there is that one person should never be the judge or jury for your product. You need to let the marketplace determine whether or not the product's going to be successful. But I think also what that, that lesson about the eggies tells you is something that you were pointing out too, is knowing your customer and, and how important that is. And maybe you aren't the customer, but maybe the customer exists out there. No, exactly. So this, to me, my big revelation was this was full circle all the way back to the lacrosse equipment. He was smart enough at that point to realize only these people are interested in lacrosse equipment. We have this inherent assumption that everyone is just like us. I watch this TV show, everybody must watch it. I like this soft drink, everybody drinks it. And there's so many choices. And he even says that at one point, if you want to invent something or you're looking to do something, everything we need has already been invented. He comes out and says that. When you look at knowing your customer, when it came to that, he definitely was not the customer for the A piece. And, and making sure that you're not the only uh, only decision maker in that, he goes back to his, his second rule. He, at one point he lists his five, five questions he asks of any new idea. But is there market value to this? Is there a value proposition out there for this? And for here, I don't eat hard boiled eggs. I thought it was a bad idea. There are a lot of people that eat hard-boiled eggs, at least 30 million. <laughs> yes, for sure, or at least we're willing to try it. But that is our last point in defining the audience. So it's it's this twofold thing that we realize, hey, there's an audience for everything. And then the second part of that is how big is that audience and where are they? Right. And, and how can we capitalize on that? So um, within that scalability, the question I always say is, what is it worth? So what is 30 million eggshell units worth to us? Maybe we spend a million and we get 2 million out of it. Maybe we spend $10 and get 20 million out of it. But there is opportunity, but then it goes all goes back to the, the textbook risk versus reward. What am I willing to put in to execute this and what is the most I can get out of it? Well, guys, appreciate the discussion. That's going to do it for us here on this episode. We encourage you to watch the full video episode of Cass's interview with Lewis Foreman by visiting influencingentrepreneurs.com. You can find out more about Spiracle Media by visiting spiraclemedia.com. For Tim Baer and Cass Ward, I'm Jared Latch saying thanks for joining us.